Welcome to the AJP podcast, a podcast that discusses current events, relevant topics, and emerging issues in pharmacy. I'm your host, Carly McMore, and together with my producer, Jared McMore, and the Australian Journal of Pharmacy, we are bringing you a podcast that draws on the opinions and expertise of pharmacists from all settings and experience levels, from those pharmacists who've already been a voice in the profession to those who've never had their voice heard before. In this two-part episode of the AJP podcast, we hear from many people in the profession about the interconnected nature of pharmacy remuneration and pharmacist remuneration. We hear from people outside of Australia, highlighting that this is a profession-wide issue, regardless of setting or jurisdiction. We hear from newly qualified pharmacists, students, and those with decades or more of experience. We hear from employees, employers, educators, advocates, and representatives of the profession. One thing remains clear. No single person or group has all the pieces to help funders see what we are worth. This is an issue that affects all pharmacists, and understanding all the aspects can be challenging. Sam Kattenpah highlights the importance of public discussions about remuneration, both for pharmacists and pharmacies. Look, I think, first of all, I'm really glad that this is a discussion we're happening is happening out in the open. I think quite a lot of time pharmacists don't talk about what they earn, and I think that actually hinders our profession, because without transparency, we can't have good discussions. Um, I'm really glad that organisations are also championing it everywhere. One thing, though, I, that I think is a bit interesting is that a lot of the discussion is about simply having owners increase the award rate. Um, I think that's definitely something we... The award rate that we receive is lower than I see our value, but I think simply asking owners to increase the award rate doesn't reflect the fact that the owners themselves are quite often have financial difficulties. So while I commend that we are really looking into this, um, I'm a really bigger proponent of new ways to get remunerated and ways to get money that we're not currently accessing rather than simply raising the bar up without consideration of how that fits into everything. Anthony Tassoni discusses the impact that government and other funders have on the ability of pharmacy business and health services to deliver improved conditions to pharmacists, as well as the impact funding disparities between hospital and community pharmacy can have on the ability to recruit pharmacist staff. Just so on remuneration, so we, we, we sort of touched on with around location rules and ownership and what that could mean a difference of pharmacists employed and working within community pharmacy, the good quality pharmacists ought to be remunerated um, possibly more than what they may be getting at the moment. And evidence has shown and experience has shown over the last decade that the higher the gross profit dollars per prescription dispensed, the greater the wage growth for employee pharmacists is that and I, people can accuse me and shoot me down and say, well, that's just trickle-down economics. But the more money that we can bring to the community pharmacy network that employs 65% of our total pharmacist workforce, that will influence and help benefit employee pharmacists. Unfortunately, at the moment, when I speak to ph- um, recruitment agencies, that uh, locum agencies and recruitment agencies for pharmacists, the feedback I'm getting is that community pharmacy is not seen as uh, highly or desirable as a employment opportunity compared to hospital or industry. And, you know, I think that 
what we need to do is to ensure that pharmacy and community pharmacists are remunerated appropriately because they are the most accessible and visited primary health destination in our country, providing a vital service that basically keeps people healthy. And uh, it's hard from a small business o- a small business owner's perspective, as you and I are both, to be able to compete with a publicly funded organisation that may be able to provide uh, growth pathways for remuneration or career diversity and the like. And I and I I don't think that pharmacy has to be a this versus that. Some people work between community and hospital and do so really well and have a great satisfaction of doing so but we don't want and we can't have community pharmacy left behind uh, in that regard where hospital for instance are getting a greater share of the PBS uh, expenditure their remuneration model for dispensing PBS prescriptions is different to that of community pharmacy and, and not necessarily you know in line with regards to high cost medicines for instance and that's the trend more high cost and uh, specialised medicines are being introduced on the PBS. And if more of them are going through the hospital network and they're getting remunerated differently to community pharmacies and they've got a different budget to be able to employ pharmacists to what community pharmacy can have the capacity to do, then we don't want to have uh, you know, the, the, the possibility that people say, um, you know, community pharmacy, I'm not going to be remunerated properly. I'd rather go into hospital or an and industry and community pharmacy gets left behind. That will be devastating for the Australian public. So the more money we can bring and the more opportunity we can bring to the community pharmacy network, the evidence has shown it will benefit employees and will benefit the system. So if it's the case that prescribers are being asked, instructed or otherwise to write prescriptions in a way that they can only be dispensed by a hospital pharmacy or keeping it away from the community pharmacy network because it's better for the hospital, if that's the case, that's appalling because that's not putting the patient's interest first. And it's actually not putting the it's not putting the patient's interest first in a number of counts. First and foremost, around accessibility and convenience and, and timeliness to access treatment. But the taxpayer, so it it it's actually it's something that needs to be you know more spoken about. There's a, the hospital funding agreement uh, in in the in relation to PBS is actually going to coincide with the seventh community pharmacy agreement. It's going to be an opportune time to uh, correct anomalies to. Um, remedy unintended consequences for the trends of PBS dispensing and, and, and the hospital funding agreements have been rolled over from the early 2000s and it's it's time to just address it um, so that we're not even having these contemplation, you know, th- these things contemplated that inconvenience patients. Cathy Reid discusses how the changes in pharmacists' supply and demand drive remuneration and what pharmacists need to do to stand out as an employee. Yeah, look, pharmacist remuneration is obviously a very hot topic in Australia and has been for some years. And I think similarly to New Zealand, the the largest constraint is around when the number one, I guess, revenue source for or the number one income source for pharmacy businesses is the government and dispensing fees and margins on medicines from the government. I think, you know, the average pharmacy, I think, still achieves somewhere in, in the 70 to 73% of its revenues through the dispensary. So the pricing set by the government 
drives essentially, you know, if you start at what's coming in through the front door and then you take off your cost of goods and you take out your rent and everything else, you end up left with what you've got left to distribute. And unfortunately, as uh, as the pricing reforms have driven through and some of the prescription numbers have actually decreased in many instances, that's unfortunately leaving a smaller pool coming in through the front through the front door as a starting proposition I don't know any pharmacy owners who wouldn't dearly love to be able to remunerate their pharmacists at a much higher rate than what they what they do but you can't actually give out what doesn't exist. And I know one of the things that we've been very proactive on within our organisation, and you know, we're, we don't really play very, we don't play very much at all in the retail space. We're in, you know, as you heard earlier, aged care and also in private hospital and cancer care pharmacy. And we've actively looked for additional ways that we can actually generate remuneration through the provision of professional services, whether that be clinical services with our hospital clients. Again, that's that's no easy thing to achieve as well because you know the hospitals aren't necessarily wanting to be able wanting to pay out more for pharmacy services than they have been. You've got, you've really got to create and demonstrate a very strong value proposition for that. I think the other thing that has really been very challenging in Australia in terms of pharmacist remuneration as well is the the number of available pharmacists. You know, it's it, it, it's like any market when there's supply and demand. I remember when, when Stuart and I first went into business 20 years ago, there was a real shortage of pharmacists at that time. And you'd be desperate to hire people. And quite often there were only two questions that you actually asked in an interview. Do you have a bee farm? Are you breathing? And if you could tick both of those, yay, you've got the job. I mean, that sounds dreadful, but it was a bit, and we were a bit more robust than that, but it was a bit like that because it was so hard to find people. There just weren't pharmacists there. What then happened as a consequence was there were a whole lot of new pharmacies schools that opened up around the country and that actually created a much greater number of pharmacists which which was great because it facilitated the development of those professional services because you actually had professionals to be able to deliver the services but it also meant too that you actually were back to a scenario where instead of the power being in the hands of the pharmacist who was going for the job saying well if you want me you have to pay me this and the employer being absolutely desperate because they couldn't open the doors without a pharmacist there the power turned back around the other way where you actually had six or seven pharmacists or more competing for one job and the power was then back in the hands of the employer for saying what they were prepared to offer as remuneration and you you know somebody would always accept it we always tried to be very fair around the way that we handle that, but you know, I think we've all heard stories of cases where maybe that hasn't been applied with quite the same degree of fairness. And again, that's so. They're the two major market drivers that I think have have really caused the problem here. The supply issue seems to be pretty much evened out now. That doesn't seem to be anywhere near as there doesn't seem to be anywhere near the excess numbers that there were a few years ago but the remuneration piece as in terms of what's available to come in through the door is is still very much a challenge. Chris Campbell and Catherine Duggan discuss the need for pharmacists and the pharmacy industry to demonstrate value and to maximise opportunities to improve remuneration. 
Catherine also discusses the need to change the narrative around the value of the pharmacy services in reducing costs as much as in delivering value to the health systems and how this needs to be considered in funding models. Okay, the opportunities. Um, so with pharmacist remuneration, opportunities that uh, we have, uh, I think with the, we leave a lot on the table, to be honest. Um, so um, c- currently we're, um, if we just look at community pharmacy, for example, we do have uh, quite um, generous funding through the community pharmacy agreement. Pharmacies that I work with... Um, we have a high percentage that are not maximising that level of funding, particularly around the medication use review um, medcheck um, process. Um, so that's, not, that's number one. Uh, number two, um, from a remuneration perspective, um, a community pharmacy can learn a lot from the hospital sector. Uh, we have a um, you know, obviously different funding when we look at, a, say, a, a state-funded hospital or a privately funded hospital. Um, the hospital pharmacists have been able to demonstrate the value of having a hospital pharmacist there or demonstrate the clinical value um, and demonstrate the cost savings of having that um, investment in, in community pharmacy so or in sorry in a pharmacy service um, so currently I, I still feel that pharmacists are not maximizing the opportunity in the future opportunities are endless um, if we look at um, the, the strategic intent for the pharmaceutical society it points to a multitude of things one of the things that I like is that trying to embed pharmacists wherever there are medicines um, and if we can continue to demonstrate the value that we have um, we've got a massive opportunity to um, to prove our worth and uh, over the conference we had um, many great sound bites one of my favorites was uh, people will pay for what they value and so um, if we're able to provide that value then remuneration will always come so i think if i um if i was to think of this globally because obviously i'm in a global role i think the fact that we've been based in sectors and perhaps some have been regarded more as businesses than others means that we've often limited the way in which funding agencies see us. So um, I quite agree with Chris. I think there's a lot of learning between hospital and community, but I think hospital remuneration could learn from community and vice versa. And if there was a bit more of a shared economy across those two health sectors, maybe even thinking about care homes involved in that or working with other professions, um, for example, GPs, and looking at the health economy and then how you would pay for a service that follows the patient across that, that would be a really radical opportunity for us to reframe the funding. The moment you base a funding model on volume, then the professional involved in the volume market is always going to be incentivized by a greater volume. It's obvious. Um, that individual can't use the same equation for the way in which you would deliver services because there are only a certain number of hours in the day and a certain number of valuable conversations or interactions or interventions you could have with said patients. So I think um, the opportunity for us to look at the global fund and I don't mean Global Fund for Pharmacy, the global funds involved in a service that would cross different sectors would be a really radical way to look at this. Um, and I think it's a, something that our organisation should join the dots on. Um, I'm, I'm really excited to see us moving from supply towards services in one regard, but also I think if we keep the mindset of supply... So thinking about supplying services, then we won't be able to maximise that money either. 
because that will mean that you'll just be looking to deliver more services with the resource that you have. So I think we will have to start radically rethinking how we carve up the money. And you never know, maybe having community pharmacists providing services through the hospital levy would be a really radical way of looking at it, and maybe vice versa as well. Yesterday, I mentioned about having pharmacies near, located near or co-terminus with an emergency department so that you could be part of that triage system. If you think about extending the buildings so that you could have individuals there meeting the patients as they need, that they're needed, then also think about how you might extend the reach of the funding. Um, so I don't have an answer for this. I think the opportunities are, are there, but I also think the risks are there if we keep our supply heads on, even in service uh, reorganisation. I think being able to articulate that um, at the uh, governmental or the funding agency level and to start thinking about the patient flow through the system, keeping um, remember that we do pay for things that patients access, so keeping them out of the access loop isn't necessarily a realised cost-benefit or a realised lack of spend. We need to talk that through and to have the preventers in the system as well as those who react to the system uh, preventing a readmission should be realised in that cost loop as much as the you know what we do with patients as they're admitted and thinking about admission through a community pharmacy or any other access route is really important. I think that would do a lot for patients and the public as well. I think we describe ourselves by the sector we work in or we describe ourselves by our pay band. So you often hear pharmacists across the world talk about I'm a community pharmacist or a hospital pharmacist. Um, which I completely understand. But I think patients don't necessarily know what we mean by that, um, whereas actually if we talked about the services we provide, then they would understand it, and you could be based in community or hospital. So I think it's really exciting that um, you know PS, PSA, through strategic intent, is looking at remuneration very differently, but I think that we can often miss a trick if we think about the system as it's always been versus what we could do with the money that's in the system. Can I add one thing to that? Because I, I really like how you um, spoke about connecting in a hospital with the primary care. And one of the uh, things that or opportunities I see is that if we implement a service or and, and, and obviously focusing on our core competency around quality use of medicines, if that is able to offset a cost um, and say that's hospitalisation, it's a really good trigger. Mm-hmm. Uh, the interesting thing about, and perhaps this is funding systems across the world, is that you have a different funder for a hospital as opposed to primary care and um, the, the impact you can have in primary care to offset costs that's from a different funder, the, the, if there's a way to connect the two, I think we can be so much more impactful. I'll give you an example. One time, working in a community pharmacy, I had a lady who came in um, and her husband was basically pushing her into the pharmacy. So she was just um, in a relapse of breast cancer, but it wasn't the breast cancer that was causing her the trauma. It was all of her um, other conditions which would be regarded as minor on a checklist. So, for example, um, she had thrush, she had um, heartburn, and she had insomnia. And all of those three things were much more important and impactful to her at that point in time than her breast cancer because she could 
you know, see that the breast cancer could be managed. And if you were describing that to her, you might be describing that as, oh, I could manage your minor ailments. And yet you have a person in front of you in tears because they can't sleep and they have ailments, as we like to call them, that are causing them great discomfort. I don't think that we're doing ourselves a service. Whereas actually you could be describing yourself as managing that patient in front of you with the high acuity of problems that they have. Kay Dunkley discusses the need for pay scales that recognise experience and specialisation and developing career pathways. I certainly think it's an issue that needs to be addressed um, and this is all my personal opinion, not reflecting any of my workplaces, but I think that the whole pharmacy profession has got into a habit, shall I say, of doing too many things for no remuneration and I think we really have to start to address that as well as addressing the actual pay scale for pharmacists. I think there needs to be a career progression for community pharmacists with different levels of pay for different amounts of experience. I think that needs to be... um, We really need to look at that and see how we um, can make it a career that people can progress through, not only with skills and expertise, but also with, with salary. I mean, I think it's, you know, very good in the hospital sector because obviously there are a number of grades of pharmacist and within each grade there's a year of experience. So I think that is the model we should be looking at in community pharmacy as well. But more broadly, I mean, even the uh, medication reviews and the uh, that we perform, you know, the HMRs and RMRs, I think that we need to really review how much people are remunerated for those areas as well because... The amount of work that goes into preparing a medication review, and I speak from experience in that area, that uh, we really need to think how much time we're taking and what the what that comes down to in terms of our skill and expertise, our knowledge, and the work we put into doing that, providing that service, that uh, it really does need to be increased. Certainly the medication reviews in aged care, I mean, just over $100 for one review is not a lot of money for the amount of time and effort it takes. And even for the home medicine reviews, it's about twice as much, but... It's an area that uh, we have a huge impact in on individuals and the remuneration needs to recognise that. I mean, if you look at people like psychologists, they are, they're charging $150, $200 for an hour consultation. Now, generally for a home medicine review, you might spend an hour, up to an hour with someone and then you go away and write a, a report. And I think, you know, we're not really considering ourselves at the appropriate level when we compare to other health professionals. Simon Carroll discusses how specialisation within pharmacy delivery models will impact on pharmacy and pharmacist remuneration. I think this is always a a vexatious area uh, because you've got competing interests. I do believe that currently pharmacists aren't properly recognised, I guess, for the, the, the work that they do and the, the valuable role they play in healthcare. And now how that works in terms of remuneration is a difficult one. Having been a, a past owner of pharmacy, I, I know how you're balancing the profitability of the business um, with the services you're providing and the staffing that you provide. I think generally as a profession, however, Pharmacist is, uh, 
is on the lower side of where it should be with the importance of the role we play. Yeah, and I think it, it really is a balance. And, and sometimes the pharmacies have got to look at the mix of their staffing as well to see, you know, is it right for the business they're trying to create? And that can alter how they might remunerate people as well. Absolutely. And that's changing. I think there's, there are pharmacists that are going to both extremes. You, you've got pharmacies that are going to only employing pharmacists and virtually no, if any, pharmacy assistants or, or admin staff. And then others the other way, which who, who are actually cutting back on all the pharmacists and only employing themselves, potentially, um, or a pharmacist, and then having a myriad of support staff, at, at obviously, at lower rates. And I guess pharmacy needs to choose the style, the, the, the model of business which they want to provide, and the levels of service that they want to provide. I think um, certainly in, in Canberra, where I had my pharmacies, there was always the constant threat of the public service. Uh, and people moving from pharmacy or retail anywhere into the public service because of the benefits, the, particularly um, you know, the, sec- the job security as well as the direct remuneration. Renee Beardmore discusses the evidence base that funders use to determine how the value of pharmacy and pharmacists are measured when determining remuneration. So I guess I draw my background so I... You know, a long time ago, uh, more than 10 years ago, owned two pharmacies. And when I first graduated, it was 1990, and that was the year where pharmacists were on strike. And so my whole career has been living through the journey and the evolution of the um, community pharmacy agreements and obviously the evolution that, you know, we all know is occurring between supply and services. But I kind of marry that with... What I've done in recent years, which is um, really look at... I've worked for... Um, as I uh, was privileged enough to have worked um, with the PBAC for many years. And the strong evidence base that they use for making decisions. And so I think that the next stage of the evolution for pharmacy is to have the evidence base for where we need to go for services. Uh, and I'm not sure that we're there yet. And um, I think that we suspect that there are improvements and I think that's how remuneration will change. Um, Remuneration will change when there's evidence to support it and I think we're very much in a transition. We know where we want to go but we've got to have the evidence and the story behind it to support it. Anthony DeSoni discusses the work value case and minimum award. Professional Pharmacists Australia an arm of APISMA lodged a work value case with the Fair Work Commission around um, a claim that there has been a significant net addition to the work value of pharmacists. And there hasn't been one of these work value cases for pharmacists for uh, 20 years, since 1998. Now, there is a number of criteria that you have to meet uh, to satisfy the Fair Work Commission as to whether a significant net addition in work value has occurred. Has there been a significant change? And we're talking not evolutionary change, we're talking revolutionary change in things such as the skills and responsibility of pharmacists, the nature of the work and the conditions under which the work is performed. So the PPA union put up a claim that generally says that they're looking for a 30% Uh, increase to the minimum award rate based on their view of a significant net increase um, in the the work value of pharmacists. 
Now, the Pharmacy Guild, being a, a national organisation, put uh, a submission in that uh, acknowledged that there had been changes to elements of the pharmacist's role, but that it didn't constitute, in workplace relations terms, a significant net addition in work value. And I, and I personally, I hate these terminologies where it, it reads, your value hasn't been increased. But in terms of the workplace relations sense, you've got to basically stick to the script of what is in the Fair Work Act and, and what they're looking at. Now, my personal view is that the pharmacist award rate is not high enough and it ought to be higher, and I've never paid the award for an employee pharmacist. Whether these criteria can be met to the satisfaction of the Fair Work Commission to be able to get a increase in the award rate, I, I think is uh, it's, it's a challenge. I think I actually genuinely think it's a challenge. I think it's a big task that the union has undertook to try and get this claim up, and and that's fair enough. They're representing employee pharmacists. That's what they're there to do. Whether they put up a case that's strong enough to substantiate that claim, you know, the Guild's view was they didn't put up a, a case that was strong enough to substantiate that, but that will be up to the Fair Work Commission to determine. And can I just say, if they are ultimately unsuccessful, you know, I think it, it just it, there is a demonstration, though, that it is really difficult to uh, substantiate uh, these work value claims. It, it, we we wait with you know very much interest as to what the Fair Work Commission will come back with. They're meant to come back with a decision um, in three months after the hearings took place. There, there were hearings that took place in early May. If you are to ask me personally, what would I like to see as an outcome? I would like the pharmacist award rate to be increased because I believe it ought to be higher. The test to satisfy that that is what is you know difficult and a challenge. Jared McMoore and Michael Troy discuss the opportunity the work value case creates to address remuneration, workplace conditions, and the use of these factors in gaining a business advantage, while also discussing the potential for industrial action in addressing low wage rates. Um, personally, I'm of the opinion that um, we, we're about to lose an opportunity to increase the award wage in a manner that is um, equitable. We don't want to create a situation where people are we're in a position where we're going to lose an opportunity to equitably increase um, the award in a way that is um, I, I, reducing the advantage that some um, pharmacy groups are getting from having a low award. Um, we know from data that's already been collected by various different groups that the average um, the average rate of pay for pharmacists who are working outside of the discount models is quite high above the award. When you add back in the discounting model, it drops it significantly. There's uh, something like, in real terms, a $5 an hour difference in the average wages to pay between most um, non-discounters and most discounters. Now, it's not always the same. There are certainly independent pharmacies that don't pay any, anything above the award, there are instances of, um, of discounters who are paying quite high wages as well. But what we're looking at here is the trend across the industry. And realistic, I mean, my pharmacies within... So we're very close to the, the chemist warehouses and the My Chemist, and there is an absolute advantage that they have in the wages that they're paying um, and their capacity to 
um, organize better rents because they have such a large thing. I mean, and that's the reason you become a large organization is so that you get benefits in negotiations. But when our major representative body is not taking, as employers, not taking the opportunity to increase wages to recognize our skills, all of us, not just our employees, but also at the same time handing back a competitive advantage to a group that's willing to pay such a low rate. That's um, some of which aren't even members of the guild anyway. That's right. That's um, right. Yeah, no, I do. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a place where you can uh, yeah, losing that opportunity to have that discussion. Um, and you know what? From from a guild PR point of view, they've shot themselves in the foot. Um, there is out there a hell of a lot of guild bashing. Um, a lot of it quite unfairly I believe um, coming as a guild member myself um, but you know, the, the guilds the way that they've handled the submission uh, yeah they've not done themselves any favours with their PR um, I have actually the same comment um, at the Rural Pharmacy Forum on Thursday afternoon said so, you know guys um, this was to, directly to George. I said, um, the Guild needs to improve its PR with young pharmacists. Young pharmacists don't like the Guild. Um, they're not, and I found out last night, you know, they're not joining the Guild intern training program. They're going down other avenues. Um, myself, I was a Guild intern training program and loved what they did. They a wonderful training program, wonderful people. Uh, gave me good face-to-face and good le- uh, learning environment and also supported me through some... some IR issues I was having um, you know the, the guild needs to kind of recruit back into that younger younger membership base and by not having a uh, by having the standpoint that they have had on on wages isn't isn't helping themselves I can only agree with that I, I definitely agree with that I think that it's a um, a missed opportunity um, but then you know, I, I also understand that with the submission, um, there's also the question about penalty rates as well, and they can't isolate the two. Um, pharmacy has become a seven-day-a-week, in some places a 24-hour-a-day profession, mm-hmm. but that's also needed in terms of what we're doing for our customers. Um, we are the most accessible healthcare professionals. Um, so to go, well, all right, let's increase minimum wage straight up to $35 an hour. Huge jump, I know, but... It, but that then becomes for you know penalty rates um, on a Sunday. You're looking what is it currently? It's double time, is it? Um, 195% at the moment. There we go. Yeah, thank you. Um, so that's a hell of a lot of money to then be paying on a Sunday. Mm-hmm. Um, not saying that. Uh, yeah. So if if they could do one without the other, it'd be. I think that'd be a, a much better standpoint. But I my understanding is the Fair Work Commission won't go. We'll look, we'll look at this and not look at that. Um, you kind of you make a submission you you're hedging your bets on in terms of what they're actually going to come back with yeah hmm. it sort of highlights so um there there does seem to be a bit of a, a discrepancy sometimes in this saturday and sunday wages um penalty rate wages so i've seen models where somebody is paid um x amount of dollars on weekdays yep. But on Saturdays and Sundays, they are paid the award with penalty, which is, 
I don't know. I'm still not sure. I don't do that one, so I'm, I, I'm not particularly worried about it anymore. But I've certainly seen it in places, and I wonder, mm, is that is that legal? And I wonder if the pressure to avoid the award going up is coming from those groups who are operating on weekends with penalty rates where they're paying the award plus penalty on those weekends but paying a higher than award rate on, on the weekdays. I, I don't know about the legalities. I think it's relatively widespread, as in fairly common, um, but not the standard across. The other thing with the award wages is and the work value case is I wonder sometimes... Is it a matter of, well, what's best for the industry and for employers and employees? Or is it sometimes just sometimes winning an argument? Sometimes winning the argument is what's driving the position. And I, I, I wonder sometimes if that gets in the way of doing the best thing for everybody. You know, I've read the PPA um, work value case. It is not... Um, it's not a standard that I would expect from a, a representative body. I'm glad that I'm not a member of that group. But it, it sort of it makes me worry. I mean, it makes me worry that that particular group is not doing their job, and they haven't for the 18 years that I've been in the industry. They don't. They're not, they're not very, very focused on their job, I don't think. Um, very altruistic and, and philosophical, but not actually very practical, mm. which is a real shame because there's a real place for a good, strong union. But on the flip side, if, if, um, if those who are uh, operating against them, I guess, if, from a point of view of um, industrial relations, if, if they're just making the argument, well, we need to win, that I think is a bit of a shame. We, we need to look at what's best for everybody and um, put in an argument that can be accepted by everybody. And it would also, like, I mean, you can imagine going to a work value case meeting, uh, hearing and having a union put up a case, well, we think it should be this, and the, un- and the employer's group says, well, actually, we don't agree with them, but we think it should be this, and it's still better than it is now. Mm-hmm. You can imagine that argument would hold a lot of weight because it's not like no, but it is. It's yes, but not the same yes, mm-hmm. do you know what I mean? And that might actually give it some control over the yes. outcome. Yeah. yeah. Sort of interesting in in Australia, you'll see um, though those voices that are the most disgruntled, and I don't, um, I don't, I don't think they don't have a right to be. But those who are the most disgruntled will quite often attack expansion of pharmacist roles, and the comment that they make is, "We'll just be expected to do the same, uh, sorry, get the same wages and be doing more and have more KPIs and things like that." And that shows that there's a disconnect between those people who are disgruntled and what the rest of the industry wants, because they're um, employment status, for instance, may not be what the rest of us are experiencing. Um, another interesting thing that I, th- I think is worth pointing out is the gr- the biggest employer that is known to pay, on average, $5 le- an hour less than the industry. They do employ the most number of pharmacists, in at least in Victoria, definitely Victoria, and I believe in the rest of the country, on average. Now, that gives them an enormous amount of power over... It gives them an enormous amount of power over um, controlling wages, but what, what those employees don't realise is it gives them a large amount of power because they're all working for one person or one group. And if they got together and decided this is not good enough, they actually have a lot of power invested in the fact that they've got one employer that they can say, well, we're not going to do this anymore. And if they, they realised and used that power, like it happened with National Pharmacies recently where there was a, an actual strike... 
um, I think they could actually achieve something. It's just a matter of realising that they have a level of power and, and, I don't know, doing something with it, I guess. Shane Jackson sums up the view of the profession and the interconnectedness between pharmacist remuneration and the viability of pharmacy business and health services in being able to deliver wage growth and professional recognition. There's a couple of components of pharmacy remuneration. So I'll tackle the the pharmacist remuneration as the first component of that. I think we all know, and the feedback from members of the society and the broader profession, um, is that they believe the award rate is, is too low as a, as a safety net. Uh, and we know that there are pharmacists being paid that safety net, and it's, and it's too low because what, what it doesn't recognise is that significant skills, training and expertise and the responsibility that that pharmacist has in the healthcare system. So that's, that's, that's a big issue for us, and what it does is it actually creates a lot of discontent uh, in, the, in the workforce because pharmacists don't feel like they're being recognised and rewarded. And so reward, there's two parts of reward. One is the remuneration you get, but the second part is that the recognition of the vital role that you have in the healthcare system. And the two are uh, inextricably linked um, because if you don't feel like you're being paid as you should, then you don't feel like you're rewarded and if you've got a significant role in the healthcare system, then that remuneration needs to underpin that. So there's no doubt in, it, in our view that the uh, award rate needs to accurately reflect as a minimum safety net the remuneration for pharmacists. But there also needs to be enough remuneration in the system. And so if we focus around community pharmacy here, there needs to be uh, an appropriate... Uh, allocation within the community pharmacy agreement so that we do have a robust and viable community pharmacy network that can actually pay pharmacists the way that they should be paid. Uh, And so you can't see either in isolation. And so, again, the community pharmacy agreement and the award need to really be worked in parallel um, so that there isn't this almost scorched earth type uh, outcome where if the award rate significantly went up but the community pharmacy network can't afford that, then that would create significant um, stress on on the community pharmacy environment. So we need to make sure that it's actually done in a considered and planned way. Uh, And my view is we've got the community pharmacy agreement coming up, um, the seventh community pharmacy agreement coming up in the next two years, there's actually an opportunity to look at that proactively across organisations to say, how are we rewarding our workforce the way that we would expect them to be rewarded? And Jared, you would have seen the, there was an article in the Australian Financial Review about three or so weeks ago that quoted a pharmacist saying that a pharmacist could dispense 30 prescriptions an hour safely. And, uh, you know, and so that's actually coming at it, unfortunately, from what do we need for the sustainable community pharmacy network, not from the point of view that we need to ensure the safety of medicines use. Um, and that's the key custodial role that the pharmacist has in healthcare, being the custodians of medicine safety. So uh, a pharmacist can't dispense a prescription every two minutes and do that in a way that goes to the heart of medicine safety. So the debate shouldn't necessarily be around 
well, you know, this is the AHI amount, what amount ensures a pharmacist has sufficient time to consult with the person uh, based on the complexity of the interaction that they're having and so that they're adequately remunerated? And how I like to see, uh, and I've said this for a long time, is that pharmacists, whether they actually realise it or not, I think most do, every interaction that they have with a patient is a consultation. Right. We don't actually paid a dispensing fee. We paid an AHI for the, the sort of the technical nature of the administration and handling and recording of of the medicine. We're actually we've got this terminology that we're paid a dispensing fee, but we're paid a consultation fee for each interaction that we have with the person. I think if we frame it like that, then I think people will think about their activity and how they actually do the medicine safety component of what they do from a dispensing point of view quite differently. And again, we have other consultations. We've got consultations that we do with meds checks, home medicines reviews, but we need to have a very clear spectrum of consultations based on complexity, based on time, that can be adequately remunerated in the future. And that's why terminology is important. It's not, so dispensing is not just the provision, i.e. the handing over of a medicine. There's a whole clinical activity through that consultation process that, that needs to be recognised and, and undertaken. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of the AJP podcast. If you have any comments, questions or suggestions about this episode, please visit the AJP forum at ajp.com.au and join the conversation. If you have any suggestions for future topics or would like to participate in the podcast, please send an email to ajppodcast at appco.com.au or follow us on Twitter at AJP podcast.